Knowable.me acknowledges that we record this podcast, work and live on the unceded lands and waters of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Their wisdom, storytelling and deep listening is a history we pay respect to in the creation of this podcast. Welcome to Knowable.me. I'm Kelly Schultz. Today's episode has to be one of my favourite topics so far. I am a self-confessed AFOL, that is an adult fan of Lego. But before we get into that, we need to talk about pronunciation. I am also South Australian and so until moving east, pronounced Lego, Lego. And I still do when conversing with South Aussies. The translation of Danish words to English isn't straightforward, but it is generally accepted that Lego is Lego. There doesn't seem to be a clear reason for the South Australian version, but I'll link a Mamma Mia article in the show notes where you can read all about that little quirk. I'm also going to link you to the official Lego history page because there is a beautiful cartoon there that is the whole origin story. I simply couldn't do it justice here. The short version is that Lego was started by carpenter Ole Kirk Christensen, in Billund, Denmark in 1932, and he was making wooden toys. It was in the 1950s that they turned to the Lego system of plastic bricks that you'd recognise today. If you are interested, do check out the history link. There's a lot of interesting milestones along the way. My first guest on this episode is Matthew Schifrin. Matthew has a great Lego story to tell that includes starting Lego for the Blind, allowing totally blind young people and adults to independently build Lego sets. Matthew, welcome to Knowable.me. Tell me what makes your experience of Lego unique. Well, what makes my experience of Lego unique is the fact that it is completely without sight. It is Lego, but Lego as it is experienced through touch and hearing. I don't smell or eat my Lego personally, so (laughs) smell and taste are out of the equation, but... It's an interesting case because touch and hearing are the main ways that I experience, one might argue, this very colorful, very visual medium. I don't think I've tasted Lego since they included brick separators, so you don't have to use your teeth to separate bricks anymore. So I think that's my last memory of having to taste Lego. What is your earliest memory of Lego? It was the time that my friend and I, we were driving back from a piano lesson and suddenly my friend stops the car and she says, you need to get out. Okay, fine. <laughs> I, I get out. And I realized very quickly that this is not my house. This is not the driveway. There are no steps where there should be steps. Something is very strange. And I ask her, hey, what's the matter? And she says, well, keep walking. Okay, fine. I, I gingerly take a couple of steps forward and I hit this plastic thing. And it's this big plastic thing, and I don't know what it is, but she says, okay, I want you to pick up this big plastic thing. It's a round cylindrical plastic bin, but I'm six or seven years old. I can't pick up this bin on my own. It's it's really heavy. It weighs as much as I do. So she helps me pick up this bin, and we haul it into her trunk and get into the trunk of her car. And just as we're about to close the trunk of her car, she says, put your hand in the bin. Okay. I mean, who knows what might be in there? Spiders, snakes? I don't know. So take my hand, plunge it into the bin, and there's this gling, crackling, 
crumbling sound of plastic and all different types and shapes and sizes of Lego pieces are speeding past my hand as it goes deeper and deeper into this bin. And the deeper I push this hand in, the more it seems that the Lego just continues and continues. Just this infinite Lego-ness in this bin. And that was my first memory of Lego. People just decided, hey, we don't need this Lego. We'll leave it at the foot of our driveway. If someone wants it, they can take it. Wow. It's called hard rubbish in Australia where people leave things out that they don't want anymore and people will just come along and collect it. But I'm not sure that too many people would be putting Lego in hard rubbish over here. Or if they want fights in their driveway amongst parents trying to get the latest set for their kid, that's if they want a prize fighting match between (laughs) mothers and fathers. That could be a way to, to get the battle going. What did you do with that big bin of Lego pieces? I sorted and then I built. But the interesting thing was that as a blind person, I didn't have the building vocabulary that a sighted person would have. I couldn't look in instruction manuals. And so um, when I was in school, my friends would come to class. And I don't know, first, second grade, they would tell these legends. Oh, one would say, oh, I built a castle. And the next one would say, oh, you built a castle. Well, I built a motorized flying castle. And then the third one would say, oh, you guys built a motorized flying castle. Mine can, it has remote control and I can roll it across my floor. What you going to do now? And then the other first two would be speechless because a remote control motorized flying rolling castle does seem pretty cool. And I would ask these friends, well, how did you do it? Well, what's your secret? And they said, well, we didn't do anything. We looked at the instructions. The instructions had pictures. The pictures told us what to do. And it was interesting as a child to think about the breadth and the depth of the vocabulary that you could just get by looking at a picture. You had no difficult words to learn. You just looked and you saw and you understood. And so when I was little, I would try and kind of do a similar thing. Lego made a very fun board game in the early 2000s called Constructionary, which was like the board game Pictionary, where you'd get a category and you would have to build something starting with a certain letter in a certain category. And in Pictionary, you would draw it, but in Constructionary, you would build it. And you'd get certain Lego pieces and you'd build, I don't know, uh, an insect that started with T. And you'd build a tarantula for example, and the other person would try to guess what it was. And when my friends and I would play, uh, we would play it, they would close their eyes. So we'd be on equal footing. But the thing was that my builds were often unrecognizable and ridiculous because, I I don't know, I'd I'd take a minifigure, attach him to a pole, and I'd say, well, it's, it's something on a ship that starts with an F. And they'd be like, a guy on a pole? It starts with an F, no, nothing. That, we, we can't think of anything. And I'd say, well, it's a first mate. And they'd say, yeah, but what's the pole? And I said, well, it's a mast. And they said, uh, they were skeptical because they understood that to a sighted person, if you don't use a mast piece and if you just plug them onto a pole, that could be any number of things. He could be a fireman. He could be a, I don't know, whatever. If there's no implication of what this actual thing is due to the lack of building vocabulary. So it was very interesting. On one hand, this bin was very valuable because it opened me to a whole 
new language of pieces, different Lego pieces I'd never seen before, weird rotating panels that were only used in two sets from 1997 or whatever, and they were lovely. But the problem was that I didn't have the insight and the knowledge to really understand the different use cases for these pieces because that was knowledge that was only available to sighted people. And it's an interesting one that you picked up at Tarantula as the example you used. I can imagine that you haven't necessarily spent a long time touching Tarantulas either. But that's an interesting thing about Lego and being blind is that it does afford you that ability to visualize things in inverted commas that are dangerous or too big to put your hands on or not touchable or whatever that concept is. How do you explain that Lego can actually bring that world to you as well? I mean, I I don't think much explanation is required. If we think about the Great Wall of China, for example, I went to Denmark and I presented the uh, text-based instructions that I'd created with a friend that let blind people build Lego sets on their own. And I came to Denmark, and they had a model of the Great Wall of China on display. And I felt this model, and the various towers of the Great Wall are kind of battlemented. And I found this very interesting, because I had assumed my whole life that the Great Wall was straight and more or less even, like the kind of wall you'd have folding up the roof of your house. Yeah, But that was not the case, because... It is the Great Wall. It's not just the Wall of China. No, no. It's the <laughs> Great Wall. And so that level of greatness was lost on me because this was not information that I could readily access. If we think of the Sydney Opera House, for example, we know that it's an opera house. We know that people sing there. And one can do research and go on Wikipedia and read about the various sales and the opera house's design and such. But Unless you build it as a blind person, only when you build it are you able to get a sense of the scale and the sheer kind of ostentatiousness of this building that is essentially made up of of these uh, what look like clementine slices stacked next to each other and on top of each other and in various ways. And it's a strange image, but... One could argue that that's an easy way to explain it to a blind person. If they haven't built the thing, then we say, oh, it's like we uh, put a bunch of chunks of clementine slice together on top of each other, and they're big and poofy, and that's that's how we made it. And the only reason I bring this up is because to a blind person, these concretizations of the world around them are very useful because if you talk about clementine slices, oh, you've eaten one, you know how it's peeled, you know how it works. And so then if we combine multiple of them, then you know, oh, it's there's a kind of abstract squishiness to it that the sails also possess. And when you build out of Lego these massive landmarks, which you've read about and you've heard about, you're able to completely kind of engage with them. The same thing goes for the Statue of Liberty. It gets destroyed in every single action movie. And you know it has a torch, you know it has a scroll, you know it has a crown, you know it was given to the U.S. by France in the 19th century, but that's all you know, unless you build it as a blind person. I think I've heard lots of different descriptions for the Sydney Opera House sales, for example, but like you say, building it in Lego can be a game changer for being able to really understand what that shape is and what that building is. 
And the lack of error is also very helpful because as a blind builder, you only know that you're going to be using certain pieces. And there is much less... Uh, when it comes to the other arts, it's very easy to be nervous when engaging in them because you're never quite sure if you're doing things right. And as a blind person, if you're drawing, you you kind of sort of know what you're doing. But if you haven't had much experience with drawing, you you don't really know why you're doing what you're doing. And the value of Lego pieces and the fact that they don't transform, one by two brick is always going to be a one by two brick. And that sameness really helps you be sure of the fact that this brick is going to go in this place. That is the only place that this brick is going to go because that's what the instructions are telling me to do. And that can be very soothing because you're able to enter this sort of flow state, if you will. And you're able to be very productive and build quickly and build efficiently because you trust the instructions. And you trust them completely and the instructions are right. And as long as you follow the instructions, you're going to be able to build this thing. Tell me about Lego for the Blind. So Lego for the Blind started on my 13th birthday when uh, my friend, uh, my babysitter, she gave me this box. And this box was big. This box was half my size. And along with this box, she gave me a binder. And the binder was big and the binder was thick and it was full of pages of braille paper. And the box had a Braille label on it. And when Elita Brailled things, you knew that something interesting was going to happen. She had Brailled as a child. She had learned Braille so that she could really engage with me and teach me and kind of help me get a sense of what the world was like around me. And so she would Braille board games and she would Braille Dr. Seuss books for me. I still have her Braille copy of Fox and Socks on my bookshelf. (laughs) Just because she wanted she wanted me to have that experience of being able to engage with the world around me. And so the rare label on this box, it said Lego Battle of Alamut. And it was a domed Middle Eastern palace. And then the binder were instructions that she had brailed by hand on a Perkins brailler. Those typewriters are very clunky and very heavy and you need to roll in the paper and it's this whole process. And if you mess up, you need to scratch it out. And it's not fun, but hundreds of pages in this single binder. And she had created an entire lexicon. She had created text-based building instructions describing every single piece and how it should be placed so that this set would be built so that I could build this set on my own. And I cannot describe to you the feeling of something that you never thought that you could ever do. Suddenly, here it was. And it was uh, also an amazing euphoric feeling because I had secretly, for the past couple of years, I had been going to Lego review websites and Amazon and reading as many customer reviews of different Lego sets as I could because I really wanted to understand if I could build these sets, here is what it might be like. Here's what the minifigures would look like. Here is how the builds might look. Here are the different functions of them. But the more reviews I read, the more I knew that this would not be something I could do. Oh, this train is wonderful. Not something I'll ever build. Oh, this remote control crab is great. Not something I can build. Uh, But these instructions, 
it made the hours of reading reviews on Amazon, it made it all worth it. Because this whole medium, through this one binder, it became accessible to me. And I sat there and I built for as long as my brain would let me, went to sleep, woke up the next day, kept building until this domed Middle Eastern palace loomed before me on the kitchen table. This thing was big. This was 800-something pieces. And it was very it was very thrilling starting with a more sizable set because you were thrown into the deep end. Sure, I knew how the parts connected, but it was really interesting having to deal with a lot of kind of stranger geometries with a lot of arches and slopes and strange angles to the walls. And it was very beneficial because this was my introduction to Lego. To real Lego, and when I say Lego, I mean building with instructions. Yeah. And I understood what my friends had been talking about in school years ago. And it was also a very interesting experience because my friends at this time, they had all moved on from Lego. They had learned what they could from it. It had been an important part of their childhood. And then they moved on to playing sports and winning math competitions and starring in musicals and whatever else it was that they did. But here I was still and now able to derive value from these toys that they had loved but moved on from because they they didn't need them. They weren't as valuable educationally to them as they were to me. And so after that first set, Lila and I realized that we wanted to get more of the instructions out to people. And so first uh, she wrote some more instructions on the Braille typewriter, but then we realized that we had to go digital if we wanted to get this out there. And so she would write the instructions in Microsoft Word, and I would read them on a Braille computer, and then I would, uh, if there were some typos, I'd correct them. And then we amassed, over the next couple of years, we amassed instructions for uh, 40 sets or so. And then I thought to myself, okay, we gotta, we got to get it out there. So I made a website, legofortheblind.com, and we put all of our instructions there. And then a few months after that site went live, Lita died of cancer. And I thought to myself, okay, you have a choice. You can either keep this website going and you can get these instructions out to people and you can convince Lego to create their own instructions or you can leave it. But I told myself, if you leave it, then all Lila's work would have been for naught and her legacy goes poof. And I knew at the time that I needed something to, to keep me motivated, to keep me sane. And I knew from a realism standpoint, I knew that everything would be fine with me. I would go to college. I had been accepted to the New England Conservatory in Boston. I knew that I'd be studying, singing an accordion there, and I'd be performing in a musical in Scotland. All this stuff would be happening to me. And I knew that everything would be fine when it came to me. But what hurt was the fact that Lila wouldn't be there to see it. And I knew that to keep her memory alive, to keep the legacy alive, and to keep the project alive, I had to really put the pedal to the metal and get it out there. And then came the hard part. Lego is a ginormous corporation. How do I even find who to talk to? Because at the beginning of this whole thing, I had emailed Lego and their customer service, and I'd emailed them and I'd said, hey, we have these instructions, what do we do with them? 
And they said, you know, we, we can help you find your missing pieces, but this is not our area of expertise. So we, we, we really can't help you. And it was quite miraculous because I was talking to a friend of mine at the MIT Media Lab. And in the MIT Media Lab in Boston, they have a group who did a lot of collaboration with Lego. And I told him about these instructions. And I said, you know, I, I really don't know what to do. I want to get them out there. I don't know anyone at Lego. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. He said, I have a friend who moved to Denmark two weeks ago to work for Lego. I'll put you in touch with him. He might know someone who could help you. So person A puts me in touch with person B. And person B puts me in touch with the head of Lego's Creative Play Lab, which is a group that works on new experiences and experimental projects. And the guy of Lego's Creative Play Lab, Olaf Gerlofsson, wonderful, extremely talented engineer and inventor and innovator, he looked at these instructions and he said, yes, you keep doing what you're doing, write your own instructions, but we want to approach it from a technological standpoint and we can see how we can use technology to create instructions more efficiently. And he had thought about artificial intelligence and he said, well, what if we could make a computer do this kind of work for us? And so he collaborated with the Austrian Institute for Technology, and they did some experiments. And then we thought, you know, artificial intelligence, it can write you an essay about, I don't know, whatever ChatGPT does these days. But writing instructions is a more complicated process because it's, uh, it takes a picture, it parses it into readable language, but then it takes that language and it needs to make it even more understandable. So basically, AI is not smart enough to do this. So then we thought about autocorrect. And we said, well, what if you could write, as a person writes text-based instructions and says, put a two-by-one plate vertically on the front left corner of the 32-by-32 base plate, then it could suggest options for you. And it could say, well, usually in the sets that we have analyzed, after this step, here's what usually happens. Usually you could put a a two-by-two tile vertically behind the previous piece, or a six-by-one tile horizontally to the right of the previous piece's front stud. And so then it has a bunch of suggestions that it can give you because we've fed it a bunch of different Lego sets, and it has estimated what you might want to say. And they're currently working on this sort of instruction writing tool that could help write instructions more quickly. And the, the reason that we're hoping for speed is just because when Lila would write instructions, she would do it on her own, and it would take it would take weeks, might even take months. And uh, it was it would just be wonderful to be able to write more quickly and efficiently. And right now, it takes about five six hours to adapt a three hundred piece set. If it could take less, then that would be wonderful. That is way more involved than I think I was expecting. I did assume that it was very much a manual process and that perhaps someone was sitting there building and figuring out how to describe it along the way. But what has occurred to me is where does the lexicon come from? You did say earlier about needing a vocabulary for Lego. Does Lego have a description for all its pieces? Where does that language come from? Yes, Lego do have a lexicon. And most of the time we just use their lexicon because it's universal, meaning a two-by-one plate is a flat piece with two studs or bumps on it. That's what it always is. And initially, when 
Delia had made up this lexicon, we had called it a flat two by one or an F two by one because that would take up less space on a Braille display. But when we kind of expanded and realized that we wanted to get this out there, we realized that we needed to universalize the lexicon so that the more universal lexicon, the more people could use it. And so we just said, you know, we're going to use Lego's part names because even though they might seem clunky to us, they would be the same throughout every new set that we adapt. And so we use Lego's names because you can trust them. They're not going to change them. I noticed from looking at some of your instructions that you do use a bit of shorthand or abbreviations. Does it take long to get used to knowing what an instruction means so that you are in the building process rather than the instruction translation process? For all our new instructions that we've done for the past year or so, there is no shorthand. We have gotten rid of, there are definitions of any shorthand that you might see at the beginning of each new set of instructions. And the only shorthand we have are ver for vertically, hor for horizontally, thim for symmetrically. And for older instructions, it would have taken longer to get used to the shorthand uh, because the shorthand was the same throughout older instructions. So an F2 by 1 in old speak would be a 2 by 1 plate in new speak. But that's not an issue anymore because we have gotten rid of shorthand part names to universalize the building experience and so that you wouldn't have a lot of instruction translation that you'd have to do. So do you know a lot about the people who are using your instructions? So are we talking people putting these into an embosser and printing them out in Braille? Are we talking screen readers? Do you know much about people who are using it? It depends. It depends on the people. A lot of the people I know who are using these are screen readering them. Some people are preferring large print. Some people are preferring embossers. And some people are reading on Braille displays. And so it's really a breadth of people and access slash reading methods. So it just depends on who's comfortable with what. So thinking about the building process, the thing about large Lego sets is that they come with lots of bags, numbered bags. What preparation needs to be done to prepare for being able to build with Lego for the blind instructions? Now we have moved from larger sets to smaller sets because those are easier to deal with for blind builders. And if you have three total bags, there are three total bags. There's no case of like five bag number ones that you'd have to worry about as you may in a larger set. And the preparation that's required in each of our new instructions, you will have sorting instructions for a sighted person. What that means is, for example, we will say that please group the pieces for steps one through three. And that means that they're going to take all the pieces for steps one through three, put them in one container. Now, please group the pieces for steps four through seven and eight through 12. And the reason that we're using these groupings is because those are pieces that you're not going to confuse the colors of them. We're not going to give you cases where there are three different colors of two by one. And all that the sighted person needs to do is look at the instructions and make sure that their pieces are assorted according to the different step clusters that we have laid out in the instructions. What's the feedback been like? It's been amazing. 
the fact that we have people from all over the world, people from Italy, from Germany, from Canada, UK, US, Ireland, they're writing and they're asking, oh, you know, these instructions are wonderful. When can we have more? What about instructions in German? What about instructions in Italian? And people really, they want more and more and more. And so now we are looking for instruction writers and uh, cited people who are interested in writing instructions. And we are reimbursing them for their time and for the sets that they'd be adapting. And if anyone of your listeners would like to be an instruction writer and really learn more about that process, they can email me at mattschifrin at legofortheblind.com. That's M-A-T-S-H-I-F-R-I-N at legofortheblind.com. I hope you get lots of emails. What has been the most challenging thing? I think the most challenging thing has been not just not running ahead. It's very easy to set lofty goals for yourself and say, hey, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And on one hand, that's wonderful. On the other hand, there's only 24 hours in a day. And so uh, you kind of might end up with a backlog of sets that you want to adapt. And the challenge has really been to really craft instructions and really get them out at a steady pace, but also to make sure that you're not overloading yourself. Because I I remember there was a, uh, we were doing a building test with blind kids and uh, the kids really loved it and it was wonderful. But the day before I was checking instructions for the Lego grocery store and it was a 400 piece set. And I thought, you know, this will be fine. I thought, I don't know, a couple of hours, uh, not, not much more than that. Seven hours later, <laughs> seven, I was sitting with this dastardly grocery store for seven hours, <laughs> making sure that the instructions, uh, uh, a wonderful friend of mine had done the instructions, and I was going through every step and making sure that the instructions made sense, making sure that uh, when we create these instructions, we not only want them to make sense, and for you to be able to build the set. But we also really want to provide an engaging building experience. So we're describing box art and sticker designs and minifigure prints and all these things that the sighted builder gets by default, but that the blind builder may not have access to. So I'm just sitting there and my uh, my dad was helping me so that everything would be quicker. And I'd be like, Dad, what's on this sticker? He said, well, the instructions say that it says peas. And I said, yeah, I know it says peas, but what's the <laughs> plot like? Are there any pictures? And he says, do you really need this? And I said, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I want to make sure uh, that the blind builders, they, they know what color the peas are if they, if they want to know that information. And some blind people may say, you know, that's unnecessary information. That's too much information. But I'd much rather it be too much information than too little information. Uh, because if we think about Lego sets now, if you go to a toy store and you want, as a blind person, you want to purchase a Lego set, tough luck. All the boxes, you can approximate what size they are and approximately how much they can cost. You can shake them and hear about how many pieces are in them. But other than that, you really don't know what it could be. You can try and scan it with your phone and it might read out Disney or a chunk of a set number. But other than that, there's really no way for you to figure out what set is what. So why am I saying this? Because if the blind person cannot figure out what set it is, at least they should know that whatever set they're getting is fully accessible and fully engaging for them 
and that they are getting as complete a building experience as we can offer them. That's such a great motivation to keep doing what you're doing, I'm sure. I mean, I'm very glad I have the opportunity to do it. And also as a Lego fan, it's very fun to kind of stick to new sets, but also go back in time and adapt some older sets because the older you go, the easier and the kind of simpler the sets were because they use larger pieces. So I can say, hey, I can adapt a set from the 90s uh, because it's still fairly purchasable online, eBay or BrickLink or whatever, and it's, it's fairly affordable, but it's easier for me to adapt. They didn't have the variety. They, they didn't have the, a lot of stickers to worry about, and so you were just off, kind of off their building. And therefore, the, the older the set, the less time it takes me to adapt it. And so I think it's very important for me to rein myself in when it comes to adaptation and to stay as contemporary as possible and not kind of unleash my inner historian and inner collector. It must be restrained. Do you have a favorite Lego set? Oh, goodness. That's that's an awfully difficult question. I don't know how I'd answer it, but I don't have to. I'm asking you. <laughs> that, that's, that's very true. I think it's very very difficult to answer because each set has its own merits. But I can tell you a funny story about one of them. And Lina and I would have this Easter egg hunt that she would organize. And it was like a puzzle hunt where you would find these clues scattered around the house or the yard and they'd lead you to something. And eventually they would lead you to some sort of big prize at the end. And so I've solved all the clues and they're leading to the old treehouse that I had in my backyard. So I start climbing up the ladder and I see that there are these ropes tied in an X shape across the ladder blocking my path. And I think, oh, well, that's strange. They weren't here last time, but I keep climbing and eventually get up to the top of this treehouse play structure, climb in and bump into this big cardboard box. And it turns out to be the Lego Tower Bridge that has 4,200 pieces. It's a lovely set, it's wonderful, I'm excited to get building, but there's a problem. How do I get this thing down? (laughs) Because I don't want to drop this thing because I don't want to damage the box. I don't want to fall off the ladder because I don't want to injure myself. So I start climbing, and everything goes fine. I'm clutching the box to my chest. The box is half my size, it's very big. And then I get stuck in the ropes, and the ropes flip me upside down. So now... I am hanging upside down by my toes from these ropes, trying to figure out how I'm going to get down. (laughs) You didn't let go of the box, did you? (laughs) No, no. I'm a collector. I don't want to damage it. But Anita's standing there and she's laughing her butt off. And it was such a wonderful image to see because she's... Uh, these are the fruits of her labor, both in the sense that she was able to use these ropes as pulleys to get the box up. Eventually, I was able to wriggle myself free and... The box was not harmed in the process, but it was just a wonderful story because there was always the kind of a the thrill, the thrill of the puzzle. She was very much into problem solving and really just trying to understand how do we get at this from a different perspective? What different angle can we use to really understand how to solve this problem or deal with this issue or make life more interesting? She sounds like such a gift to to your life to date. Very much. So do you have a favorite Lego set that you don't have yet? What's next on your target list for descriptions you've already read? Oh, that's a dangerous question. 
I really like Lego have these modular buildings that they make. And they're buildings that you can take apart. And each floor has a lot of details in it. And any of those would be interesting. They have a very interesting bank that they made that has a laundromat. And they have a police station and a bakery and all these different things. And those would be really fun to adapt. They are larger. And I think sorting them would be a nightmare for the poor sighted person tasked with arranging them from step blah to step blah. But they would be very fun to adapt because they have a lot of detail and a lot of insight into how the sighted world works. And I think they would be very interesting for blind kids to build and to be able to engage with. Elena and I had adapted some of them when she was alive, but after she died, I just didn't, it was just too massive a project to undertake. Smaller sets were much easier to do. Lego's done some interesting things recently. Have you had a chance to get your hands on the Lego Braille pieces? Yes, I have seen them. I think that they're very valuable in teaching blind kids Braille. And I think that they really give a lot of wonderful opportunities for blind kids to not think of reading as a chore. Why is this important? Just because blind children can be taught in a very this is how you do it way. And some blind kids, if they're losing their vision, they don't care about Braille. Sure, it's this thing that you have to learn because you need to be able to read and it'll make you a successful human, blah, 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 blah. They don't care. They want to play with their friends. They want an experience that is not purely educational. They want fun. And these Lego Braille bricks offer a very interactive in a very immersive way to just be able to have fun with words. It's like the magnets that you put on your fridge that have words on them. Same thing. And the fact that it's Lego allows for a wonderful interoperability between these bricks and whatever other Lego pieces that one may have. And it just allows for so much fun. And I think fun, it's very easy to get busy and to forget how to have fun. And especially as a blind child, when you're learning to read, when you're trying to understand kind of what it's all for, where's the fun in it? I think these bricks are a wonderful way to get blind kids really engaged and excited about reading. Awesome. Well, Matthew, it's been fabulous talking to you. Is there anything else that you want the world to know about Lego and your experience? Uh, just a quick detour here. I found Lego very useful not only for building sets, but also it's turned out to be a very interesting way to notate different types of motion in music. So as someone studying in music school, you had these music theory assignments that you had to do. The professor would play melodies and you'd have to write them out. And even though there is music braille, it's kind of a clunky system. And I had some Lego in my dorm room and I thought to myself, well, why don't you use the different types of bricks to represent the different lengths of notes? Because let's say a measure is made up of 16 16th notes. So one by one is going to be a 16th note. An eighth note has two 16th notes in it, so it's going to be a two by one. Quarter note has four of them. It's going to be a four by one. Half note has eight of them. It's going to be an eight by one. And what this allowed for me to do, I'd bring Lego bricks to theory class. And I would be able to build these exercises that we were doing and it allowed for a wonderful manipulability of the pieces. If you put in a wrong note, you could just swap out a two-by-one for one-by-one. 
it was a wonderfully interactive approach and it allowed me uh, not only to understand how music was notated, but really be able to engage with it beyond the standard notes, beyond writing it out on paper or using Braille. And it was wonderful because my friends really got in on it as well. And we'd have kind of Lego building sessions where we'd build our theory exercises. And it was a wonderful way just to break the ice and take a toy and make it into a more than a toy. But then it got even more interesting because I started rock climbing. And I was climbing with a group of blind and visually impaired climbers. And I realized that blind climbers were at a serious disadvantage because they couldn't see the wall before they climbed. And so they couldn't figure out how to approximate their body positions. And as a result, it would be much more difficult for them to climb as opposed to a sighted person who can look at the wall and have a mental calculation of what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And so even though as a blind climber, you have a person at the bottom of the wall yelling directions up at you and saying, I don't know, left foot, left knee, for example, which means bring your left foot up to where your left knee is, that doesn't necessarily give you enough insight into how your body should be positioned in the overall kind of arc or story of the climb, the overall motions of the body that you're going to need to do to get from bottom to top. And so I brought in Lego bricks and I thought, okay, let's make different lengths of bricks represent rocks of different types. We have a jug, which is a large hold that you can grip with a hand. That would be a two by one. A mantle, a, a shelf-like hold that you can lean an elbow or a forearm on, that's going to be a three by one. A pinch, which you pinch with one or two fingers, is going to be a one by one. And my friend and I, we were just able to build different rock climbing routes using Lego. And then uh, we tested them on other blind climbers. And the wonderful thing was that not only was this rock climbing system helpful for me, it was helpful for these other people, these climbers, high caliber, U.S. champion climbers, who were wonderful in terms of technique and body positioning generally, who had a wonderful insight into how their bodies moved. It was wonderful to see that these climbers these elite climbers were still benefiting from the system because they were getting insight into the map of the route and into the motions of their body that they did not otherwise have. And so basically, why am I telling you this? Because it's wonderful to realize how versatile Lego can be beyond sets, beyond bulk pieces and parts, and how it can be used for solving all different kinds of problems and getting yourself out of any type of sticky situation you put yourself into. Well, you've really just confirmed for me what I, I think I already knew in that there isn't really a problem that Lego can't solve. Lego could be the solution to all of the world's problems. Probably. I can't wait to see what happens next. I hope you get lots of emails about people who want to write instructions. Thanks for joining me, Matthew. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. My second guest is Michael Fern, a Lego serious play trainer and facilitator. He's bringing Lego into workplaces to help solve problems and break down communication barriers. Michael, welcome to Knowable.me. First question for everyone, what makes your experience of Lego unique? Well, what I do, Kelly, is I use Lego in the workplace, in business for adults. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's quite unique because... That's not the place that Lego normally is. And so, yeah, it's a a different environment. Where did your journey start with Lego? 
Well, well, like a lot of people in childhood, so I, I remember um, Space Lego, the little Castle Lego. So up until probably age 13, 14, I was a big Lego fan, lots of Lego. This was back in the 70s and 80s at its peak, although it's grown quite well now. But, yeah, so I didn't touch Lego after that for, for a long time. I was off doing adult things in, in quotes. Um, and then it was around maybe about 10 years ago now I came across this thing called Lego Serious Play, and it's it was Lego in business, and I was like, wow, and, uh, yeah, I've been doing it ever since. So talk to me about Lego Serious Play. Is that just a good cover story that gives adults permission to play with Lego in the office? Well, it's not just a cover story. No, <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I guess it's probably good to go back to what my background is. So I'm a facilitator, so I, I run workshops and I, you know, I get hired by people and in organisations to get an outcome. And so I'm always looking for the best tool to do that, the best method, the best way to do that. And so that's when I came across Lego Series Play, I was just like, oh, wow, I saw what it did. Um, and, and it really is about experiencing. It's, it's hard to just think in the mind about what Lego and business, what does that actually mean? But once you actually experience it and you see it in action, you see the results and you see what people do with it, then you realize it's much more than just a cover to, to play with Lego at work. So what does a Lego Series Play session look like then? Yeah, so it's on a topic. So it is actually on the work that you're doing. So it could be at a high level, it could be something to do with strategy or it might be a change or there might be something around culture or it might be something like a stakeholder analysis or risk analysis. Like there's all these hard work topics that we're already doing. And then what we do is instead of just doing in the normal way where you go to a meeting and the the extrovert in the room or the most powerful person in the room (laughs) dominate, um, what it is, is it uses Lego to really level the playing field. So you bring a bunch of Lego in, you ask people questions about that topic, you get them to individually build their answers to that in Lego. And it's not just the, the literal Lego that we all know of, like, I'll build a, a car or a wall. It's this beautiful sort of story-based metaphorical Lego building where it's almost like your, your mind goes free and you build all these wonderful things that are in there about the topic, about, you know, the topic, the work topic that you're there to discuss and to, to get better insights. So you build these models, you share your ideas, and effectively it's a communication tool to, to get work done. What sort of objections do you come up against when people walk into the room and, and there's Lego on the table and it's just sort of a bit of a, oh, no, kind of reaction? I get all of them. Before the workshop, during the workshop. So I'm a big fan of letting people know that there's going to be Lego in the room. I don't, I don't, I never like to surprise anyone with the Lego. <laughs> and so when they come in the room, they know they're going to be using this, this thing called Lego serious play. But I do get a lot of crossed arms and you, you get a lot of people that, you know, think of it as a child's toy and what place does it have? I've, I've got real work to do. Um, why are we doing this? And over the years, I've learned a very good way to warm people up. So you, they've got questions in their mind. They've got things like, what is this Lego thing? Is it just a team building fluffy thing? Is it like, do I need to be a Lego master? I'm not creative or, you know, there's all these things yep. that go through people's minds. And so it's a very clear process at the start of ticking all those questions off and answering them. And so I do it in various ways to make them feel more at ease and, and willing to engage with it. And once you've gotten to that point where they're willing to give it a shot, um, then they, they go, they do it, they build and they see it and they experience it. And from that, it, I mean, it's, I won't say 100%, but it's like 99% of people turn around. And it's actually one of the very satisfying things in my job is seeing the crossed arms, the skeptics turn around and go, wow, okay, so this is actually just like the work we were doing, but but better. So, um, <laughs> I've had them all, all the objections, and I get a joy in turning them around. 
you said it evens the playing field. What do you observe from the point of view of those people who are the extroverts who might be all over it or someone who comes into the room and is, oh, they're an expert at Lego? You know, how yeah. how do you see it actually levelling the playing field for people? Yeah. So it's almost like with the Lego, it's almost like we're creating a new language that that everyone sort of starts relatively from zero. Yes, there are some better Lego builders than others, but it's not like in technical fields where it's like, the marketing person or the lawyer or the, the this or the that, they have their own technical language, they have their own mastery of that, and it's it's a very uneven playing field crossed with the extrovert, the powerful, the, you know, the analytical. Like there's, there's various characteristics of people that our current meeting formats, just just preference, like it, it just says, okay, you're the extra extrovert powerful person, you're going to be good at this. Like that's what we've set up. And so... The Lego levels it because suddenly we're all learning this new thing. Like we're all at zero. And then we do a thing where we do a little bit of turn taking. So you get a turn, you get a turn, you get a turn. So there's facilitation techniques underneath it. But that combined with this sort of new way we're using Lego means that everyone starts from zero and they just build up their skills together. So are you just really good at building things with Lego? (laughs) No, no, no. I'm actually... I'm actually really bad at it. And that's the good thing about Lego series play. You don't have to be good at Lego quotes because whatever the model is, whatever you build, um, we have this thing, the bricks are whatever you want them to be. So you bring the meaning to the bricks. And so if you, if you're the worst builder in the world and you just create this thing and you tell us what it is, we believe that like that's, that's what it is. And so personally, I'm, I'm not that great a Lego builder. I'm, okay now at Lego series play. And and part of that is just letting the mind go and sort of almost like a creativity thing where you let things flow out of you rather than um, sort of gated or, or kept inside. But part of the reason why I now facilitate it is because I'm not that good at it. I'm not that good, but <laughs> I make other people do it. Um, but no, it's um, it's not a good or a bad thing with, with Lego series play. It's um, It's just a form of expression. Does working with Lego, though, make you less likely to want to play with it for fun? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've got two kids, like a two-year-old and a six-year-old, and so I do have a lot of Lego lying around that they like to work. They like to play with daddy's work Lego. Um, And so I get into it with them, but, yeah, I don't – I guess if they're not around, I don't do a lot of building, but they sort of draw me into the – I guess the funner side of Lego again. Not that it's not fun with Lego Series Play, but it's the, the more original use case. Of, of Lego. Do you have a long-standing favourite Lego model? I, I do, actually. <laughs> so This actually goes back to a work thing. So this is well before Lego Series Play. I, I did get a 1982 Lego Moon monorail set from Bricklink, which you probably know about Bricklink. It's a, a devilish site that can give you any <laughs> Lego set from any part of history. Uh, someone will sell it to you from around the world. And this this used one came from Canada. Um, and I was actually using it in a, a workshop, but it was hanging around afterwards. And it was a it was a fully working moon monorail. Um, so it was it was a joy. I, I wonder where it is anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved a few times since then. It's probably in a box. I love the fact that we can have all those imaginary things. Why isn't there a monorail on the moon yet? You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was thought of in what, nineteen eighty two? We still yeah. haven't managed to do that yet. <laughs> when monorails were a thing, I mean, they still are. But <laughs> and that's the thing. That's the thing with Lego that kids have been doing for for years and decades is they've been letting their mind go and creating these things. And, yes, the Lego 
sets have helped that, but it's been the creativity that kids have brought. And it's that same philosophy with with taking it into the work realm. It's it's using this tool that has a lot of that associated with it, and it's it's encouraging people to let their minds be freer about a different topic, about a work topic. But yeah, it's it's that same thing, just imagining things differently. Do you have any key moments of success, any aha moments that have happened with your facilitated sessions that you've really turned something around? Yeah, it, it's funny. I've, I've had this question before and because I've done so much of it over 10 years, like it's literally like thousands and thousands of people. Mm. It's almost like that, the, the good stuff just blurs into this happy sort of memory. There are a couple though that some of them are not the not what you would think though. So the warm-up activity we do is it can, be a very, can be a very powerful one. Um, and over thousands of people, I've actually had some people cry during it. And this is in a work environment where it, it, it's called a build a tower with you in it. And it's about expressing something about yourself in, in this Lego model form. And so they build a tower and it's, you know, part maybe work you, home you, you know, you hobby you, you bring a lot of stuff to it. And it allows people to go deep if they want. Now, this is just the warm up. It's not even the topic we're there to talk about. It's just the warm up. But a few people over the years have actually cried during it. And you think, is that a, is that a successful moment? And the answer is yes, because first of all, they moved through it really well, but it was because they were expressing something that was important to them in a context that they, they wouldn't normally. Um, and so it was very powerful for them. Now that was on a very individual level. Um, and then you see that, like, that's one example. You see that going to when we move on to things called individual models and people will build stuff about their career or about, you know, and they'll have these insights where, I remember one lady was, she was playing with this, she had a model and she was playing with this little bit of Lego off to the side. And so I asked her, oh, what's the little bit of Lego off to the side? And she said, I wasn't sure if I was going to put this in, but let me tell you about it. And she told us about it and it was it was like this big unlock for her to do with her career. And it was like her hands were toying with it off to the side. Um, and it was only when we brought it in, she had this this giant unlock. So a lot of the things that I really remember are those those individual sort of aha moments. And and they build up to be group and team aha moments. But one of the things that I love is that all I do is I bring questions with Lego Serious Play. So it's literally like, I have no idea what the answer is. I have no idea what they're going to come up with. But I bring a bunch of questions and I I hope, and it, it pans out, that they all have their own aha moments. And so I'll have a room of 24 people and I'll only get to hear a few different stories, but I'm pretty confident that everyone's having their own little aha moments as you're going along. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, but it's there's just so many of these little moments that that I um, I really enjoy. Sounds like an amazingly fulfilling role that you get to play. <laughs> it is. It's funny. People say, oh, you've got the best job. And it is, but not because of not because of playing with Lego. <laughs> yeah, it's not because you, you don't actually get to play with a lot of Lego. Like I don't get to play with a lot of Lego. I tell people, but I don't get to do it. But it's actually the stories that are really fulfilling. It's about people sort of bringing more of themselves to work and sharing their story. And so um, I'm, I'm just a story junkie in the end. I like, I like hearing their stories and that's, that's why I keep doing it. Yeah, so it's very fulfilling. I noticed one of the other things that you offer is certification to become mm. a Lego Serious Play facilitator. Do you want to tell me a bit yeah. about that? Yeah, so it's interesting that you can get trained in the method. You don't have to. So this is a, a lot of misconceptions around, oh, I've got to go off this training and be certified in it. And the answer is no. It's probably better if you do because you learn it well, you learn more. But I wrote a book a few years back like sharing a lot of this information that I that I teach people. It's so that everyone can use it. And so 
people can, you know, give it a shot themselves. They can read a book and get that information. If they want to go further, they can get certified. And, and all certification is really saying is, look, I took the time to take this seriously. I, I took the time to, to learn it with someone who knows their stuff and who, you know, supports me now in my Lego serious play journey. And so, I mean, it's great to put it on LinkedIn and it's, it's great to tell kids, you know, like nieces and nephews, look, there's like a career in Lego. <laughs> um, but in the end, the certification, I'm more interested in people learning it, learning it well, getting the support to do it. And, you know, certification is, is a way. It's not the only way. It's a way to do that. So if anyone wants to hire you to run Lego Series Play or is interested in the certification, what do they need to do to find out more? Yeah, so I guess the easiest thing, like everyone, I've got a website. So I've got one called lspmethod.com. And the reason I highlight that is there's a few things there. Yeah, you can contact me, but the book that I mentioned is there. You can, you can get it from Amazon, but if you don't want to chop down trees, you can just download it for free from that. So I always encourage people to do that, learn a bit more about it, have a bit of a go of it themselves. So I test it out in a safe environment with friends or family um, and see if there's something there for you. Like I'm confident there is. But then one of the things, Kelly, that I think about Lego Series Play is even though it's been around 20 years, it's still very novel. It's still very new for people um, because it's been kept under wraps. And that's a whole nother conversation we don't have to have. <laughs> but it's starting to open up. And so I really encourage people to to try it because it's almost like a tech adoption curve. You know, the when, when a technology comes in, it's like there's the early adopters and then there's the mainstream and then there's the laggards. And I feel like we're just getting over that early adopter stage. And so just just have a go at it like see what it whether it works for you and i'm confident it will and then from there you can go further into training or have a go at it or there are some people that don't even need training like expert facilitators i've seen pick it up and use it but but most people i encourage you know to either chat with someone who knows about it do a training take it a little bit further and then sort of learn all the, the wonderful ins and outs of it amazing is there anything about lego or lego series play that we haven't covered that you want to get out in the world it's an interesting world out there in terms of the community. So there's a lot of, around the world, a lot of great people doing it. It's, it's really big in Europe. It's really big in South America, which is some interesting things. Part of it is because where the method was first developed in Europe and where it was promoted first in South America. But it's really starting to take off in Australia and in Asia and also in the US. And I guess the interesting thing about the community is there's People get trained, there's about sort of five or six main trainers in the world, and a lot of them get trained in, in different ways. And what I always say to people is look around and see the different ways that Lego series play can be done. Because in the end, it's just a bunch of bricks, and we're getting people to express themselves. And there's there's formats and steps and systems that underlie it. But I always say go out there and see what's on offer and and really sort of take the best parts from everyone in the world and, and almost like build your own method, like have a foundation and have a solid foundation, but take all the goodness. I mean, part of it, I get a bit jealous because I'm like, I trained it in my way and I'm like, but I, I want to go off to these other people and I want to I want to build my own method, which I sort of do, but um, I, I get a bit jealous of people that learn from me and there's a guy, Michael in Germany, who learns from this person and learns from this person and they, they really construct their own. So it's definitely a, a spirit of openness and adventure and exploration, which is what the method is about. It's really about exploring. Oh, one thing I'll say as well is often people are like, what's the end result? Like, yeah. what's, what's, what's the outcome? Like, what's the point? Playing with, yeah, it's not yeah. just playing with Lego. And I'm a big fan of the Lego is the thing in the middle. 
It's the, you do it in a workshop, you do it in a meeting or a coaching session or a classroom. Like there's many people using in high schools and universities, but it's the thing in the middle. It's to enhance the conversation, but something needs to spit out the end that is useful. Like I'm all about change, about action. And so what I say to people is what do you want to spit out the end? What do you do at the moment? Like in your meetings at the moment, what comes out? And with a Lego series play session, what comes out might look at least in form, like every other meeting. So it might be an action. It might be, I don't know, if you're doing risks, it might be a bunch of risks or it might be a bunch of who knows what what comes out. But the quality of it is different because you've used Lego Serious Play in that meeting. And so that enhances the conversation. It enhances the insight, the creativity, the engagement. And then from that, you get the better insight. You get the better outcome. Even though it might just be an action, it'll be a better action for that. So I think that's an important thing to highlight is what comes out is not, not the Lego model. It's the, it's the change that you want to see happen. Do you ever use it for yourself when you need to make a change, make a decision, assess something? Do you, do you ever use it for yourself? I do sometimes. Not as, probably not as often as I should. It can be used as a self-reflection tool and things like that. I think the reason perhaps why I don't use it as much is it works really well for people that have a little bit of a block. And what I mean by a block is it's, it's usually corporate people. <laughs> you know, we, we obviously have, you know, we're out in the corporate world and there's something, whether it's a group dynamic, whether it's a problem, and it helps to sort of get you in back in flow and get you unstuck. I find now, I do use it, but I find I'm better at just getting myself unstuck other ways as well, just, just in my own head. The part of it's, I think, how comfortable you are with creativity, flow, and getting things out. And if you're good at getting things out of your head, then Lego Serious Play still works, but it's really good at getting pe- things out of people's heads that they almost have this, this block, this, and a lot of things that can be. It can be, you know, I've got my boss here. I don't want to talk about it. Or, you know, that extrovert always dominates the conversation. Or yeah. there's, always, there's always status. There's always, there's always things that get in the way. And what I find with Lego Serious Play is it just melts those away. Like you become a kid again, you get into this flow. It's like you can't help but being yourself when you're doing Lego Serious Play. And the, the great stuff that flows from it, I think it works really well when there's people that need that. Amazing. Hmm. Sorry, I feel like I'm evangelizing. I'm just like, you tell I love it. I just, I just love it. Um, and look, that's part, of, that's part of what I want to do is I want to see every classroom. I want to see every university lecture theater, tutorial room. I want to see every business meeting room with a bag of Lego. And people know how to do this. Um, and so that's probably going to be my life's work is getting that up and running. And it's happening slowly, but, you know, it's, it's, it's snowballs. It's just, it's just it's such an unusual thing in some of these contexts that it just takes time. And it definitely does break down those barriers. I'm a big fan of desk Lego, when you're, mm. particularly when you're sitting in the office, uh, to have Lego on your desk um, mm. is always a great thing. But it also breaks down barriers because people love it. You, yeah want to come and play or want to see what you're building or will come and fiddle with something and it starts a conversation and it it just is that uh, breaking down of barriers. Let's start with desk Lego. Every desk needs Lego, I think, is the next. Every desk, every meeting room. And what's interesting as well is there's a lot of science that goes behind Lego Series Play. Like I don't have to dive into it, but there's there's like really interesting stuff under the hood um, that, you know, we look like we're playing with Lego and, when I see it with clients and participants, like I see the results of it and I know the science that's driving that. They don't. They just go, wow, that was great. Or, 
three hours has gone by and I'm like, yeah, you were in flow. Like, you know, and, and the benefits of creativity and engagement from that or, you know, you were, you were telling stories, you were using your hands. Like there's so much good science underneath. But in the end, like that's just interesting for me and, you know, people like yourself to, to be fascinated by. And in the end, the participants don't need to know that. They just need to experience it and, and get the goodness from it. But, yeah, it's nice to know what's happening under the hood. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for your time today, Michael. No, thank you, Kelly. There are a couple of things for you to do next. Check out legofortheblind.com and get in touch with Matthew if you're interested in creating instructions. What a fabulous joy to be able to bring the experience of Lego to blind and low vision people. And you also need to visit lspmethod.com and nab a copy of Michael's book. All of the links are in the show notes. It's been a long one, but such intriguing conversations. Thank you for sticking around. You can now leave a voice message for the podcast on our website at knowable.me slash podcast. Look for the record button. I'd love to hear about your experiences with Lego or any other everyday experiences you'd like to share. A big thank you to Matthew and Michael for joining me this episode. As always, please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, feel free to reach out to me on social media or by emailing podcast at knowable.me. Thanks for listening.